Welcome to your go-to source for entertainment. Wait for it? Gaming? Wait for it? Anime? Plus Ultra! Mr. Eric Almighty and Phil the Filipino? Yeah, they've got you covered. And all you gotta do is wait for it. This is the Wait For It Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Wait For It Podcast, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Filuminati. I am your co-host, Phil Smith, a.k.a. Phil the Filipino. Thank you all so much for joining us here this week, and it's been a while since I've done this series, so I'm super excited to get back into it. I have a really, really interesting topic to talk to you guys about that was really fun to research, and I found a few that I think you guys are going to find very, very interesting. For those of you that are brand new to the podcast, welcome. And this is, again, my series entitled Filuminati, where I will go over different conspiracy theories. And if you go back and look at the history of Illuminati, these are all theories that are just kind of fun to look at. You won't see any QAnon bullshit or anything like that here. We believe in science here at the Way Forward Podcast, so we're not going to be tackling some of that ridiculousness that is out there. I look at theories that are just fun to discuss and you know talk about with all of you. So if you're not necessarily interested in that, totally fine. Make sure to check out the rest of our library. I promise there is something here for everyone. And for those of you returning listeners, welcome back. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed all the content we've released thus far in the month of January. And I promise there is a whole lot more good stuff on the way. So if you haven't gotten a chance to check out our last couple of episodes from last week, make sure to check out our Game Room Where It Happens episode where we talked about God of War. And also our discussion with Eric's brother, Stefan, about Arcane League of Legends, which is the Netflix show that we are just absolutely obsessed with. So make sure you check out those episodes as well. But with all that out of the way, as you can see from the title of the episode, we will be discussing a movie and television show conspiracy theories. I picked out five that I found in my research that I think are really, really interesting. I hope they spark a good amount of conversation between you and your friends and whoever else you may listen to this with. But let's go ahead and get into it here. So again, I picked five, well, four movies and one television show. And we'll start with the movie that's in the promo art for this episode, which is Titanic. Now, if you guys have ever heard me or listened to me on the podcast, you know that I think Titanic is an incredibly overrated film. It's three hours long. It's incredibly boring. And, you know, other than Celine Dion, I don't think there's really a whole lot else going for it. But, you know, if you like Titanic, that's fine. But that's not what we're here to talk about. I apologize. This theory states that Jack from the Titanic, which, of course, is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's going to pop up a couple times on this list, actually, is a time traveler. And here's the theory that is listed. Jack from Titanic was a time traveler that was only there to save Rose from committing suicide and altering the timeline. This may seem ridiculous, but think about it for a moment. If Rose jumped to her demise, then the ship would have stopped to look for her. The temporary delay would lead to warmer weather and the Titanic would have never hit the iceberg. This is also why Jack made it a note to spend so much time with her. His job was to ensure her survival. Now let's look at some of the evidence that's listed here for this theory. Now, number one, and this is from a Ranker article. All of this will be listed in the show notes if you guys want to take a look at it. Jack stated that he ice fished at a lake in Wasoda, which did not exist yet. While wooing Rose, Jack throws out a lot of game. He tells her about being an artist in Paris, the women he's met in France, and some time he spent ice fishing on Lake Wasoda. Here's the thing. Lake Wasoda did not exist until 1917, which is five years after the Titanic sunk. Next one. Jack talked about a non-existent roller coaster on the Santa Monica Pier. 
One of the most romantic moments of Titanic may hold the key to Jack's history as a time traveler. When he's holding Rose at the bow of the ship, he tells her they'll ride a roller coaster on the Santa Monica Pier until they puke. That's romantic and all, but the roller coaster on the Santa Monica Pier wasn't constructed until 1916, again, four years after the sinking of the Titanic. Again, is it possible that maybe Jack got his dates mixed up, or maybe he didn't think he was going to go down with the ship? Something else people bring up, his haircut was not really appropriate for the period. Most fan theories split hairs, but this one does it literally. One of the sticking points over Jack for some fans of the Titanic is that his hair doesn't make sense for the period. For the most part, men at their time kept their hair short and combed out of their eyes, but not Jack. He has a definite 1990s thing going on, and it's not like he couldn't afford a haircut. He's clearly styled it to be expertly messy. What about Jack's carry-on luggage? That's also something people have brought up. Jack's rucksack was uncommon for the time. Jack Dawson is easily one of the most ill-prepared adventurers to jump through time. Not only is he prone to discussing places and objects that don't exist yet, but his personal effects are also anachronistic. The bag Jack carries with him aboard the Titanic is of a style that became popular in the 1930s, which means he picked it up at least a good 18 years before traveling back to save Rose. Next up here, there's no proof that Jack actually exists. The biggest clue that Jack is from an advanced future is the line of dialogue spoken by Rose while on board the Kildish. She tells Brock Lovett's crew, quote, A woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets, but now you know there was a man named Jack Dawson and that he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. I don't even have a picture of him. He exists now only in my memory. Think about it. Why would someone from the future have records they existed in the past? In all likelihood, if Jack was born at the tail end of the 19th century, he would have a birth certificate or some record that he was alive. The only way to explain his complete lack of existence is that Jack wasn't born until well beyond Rose's time. Now, there's also part of these theories that also link the Titanic and the Terminator timeline, and I'm not familiar with the Terminator whatsoever, so I'm not going to get into those, but again, I'll make sure that this is listed in the show notes so you can look it up yourself. Now, is this one plausible? Mm, I think on the scale of 1 to 10, I would give it maybe a 4. You know, some of these I think were just James Cameron not being (laughs) aware of what was popular at the time. And, you know, maybe there were just some mistakes thrown in. I mean, look at Avatar. That's terrible. So James Cameron is just prone to making a lot of mistakes. I'm sure you did not expect this level of shade thrown at James Cameron, but I'm not sorry. But let's move on to the next one. And the next theory here involves Home Alone. And this theory states, did Kevin from Home Alone grow up to be Jigsaw from the Saw series? Now, the Saw series is not something I am 100% familiar with, but I do know enough about it to make this theory really, really entertaining. Now, all of this is from a Grantland article, and it starts with a tweet from Jason C. that states, Oh my God, I just realized Home Alone is the story of how the killer from the Saw movies became what he is. Now, I'm just going to go point by point and discuss this theory with you. Now, throughout Home Alone and Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, Kevin displays anger control issues, a proclivity for violent fantasies, and voyeuristic tendencies combined with a fetish for recorded video. Kevin becomes fascinated with his next-door neighbor, Old Man Marley, after learning that Marley is possibly the serial killer known as the South Bend Shovel Slayer. Kevin seems especially obsessed with the idea that Old Man Marley imprisoned and mummified his victims. Early on in Home Alone, Kevin comes downstairs to discover that the extended McAllister clan has devoured all the slices of his beloved plain cheese pizza. His older brother, Buzz, teases him about this, telling Kevin that if he wants some plain cheese pizza, quote, someone is going to have to barf it up. At the same moment, Kevin sees his cousin, the notorious bedwetter Fuller, with whom Kevin is sharing a bed later that evening, gleefully smirking while filling his feeble bladder with product placement Pepsi. Kevin reacts by flying into a murderous rage, releasing a guttural scream while tearing into Buzz in a whirlwind of nails and teeth. 
Buzz easily outweighs Kevin by perhaps 80 pounds, but the force of Kevin's attack pushes the older boy back against the kitchen counter. Kevin eventually orders his very own plain cheese pizza and delights in threatening the pizza boy with death, using snippets of dialogue were played from a videotape to make the teen believe he's about to be shot. After the pizza boy flees in fear for his very life, Kevin retrieves the pizza box and creepily hisses, A lovely cheese pizza just for me. Kevin would use this technique again to fend off one of the early incursions of thieves, Harry and Marv. In Home Alone 2, Kevin records a video of his Uncle Frank in the shower, later using the video to frighten hotel workers. Kevin experiences frequent realistic visual and auditory hallucinations, seeing the furnace in the basement as a ravenous, fiery mod monster. This particular symptom of his psychosis would become important in his mythology as the Jigsaw Killer. Now, the article asks, is this the behavior of a normal child? Perhaps, but when you take into the account the similarities between Kevin's intricate, almost pathologically complicated home defense mechanisms and Jigsaw's carefully designed murder traps, the case for Kevin being young Jigsaw becomes quite a bit more substantial. Let us consider Kevin's metal mouth furnace monster hallucination. I contend that this obviously scarring childhood fear would play an influential role in his later work as Jigsaw, and he would use a similar looking device to torture Amanda in Saw. In Saw 2, Kevin slash Jigsaw recreates his childhood basement right down to the furnace monster. Jigsaw places the antidote to a poison inside the furnace, luring his victims inside. When the victim grabs the antidote, the furnace door shuts and the victim is burned alive. It's notable that most of Kevin's home defense devices are triggered by the victim, just as Jigsaw's traps are. And from the very beginning, Kevin slash Jigsaw has been using fire to dispatch victims. Kevin caused Harry's hand to be burned when the older man grabbed a white and hot doorknob, and he rigged a blowtorch trap that triggers when Harry opens a door, resulting in the thief's head being burned down to the skull. Now, further echoing Kevin's murderous Home Alone proclivities, there's Jigsaw's flammable jelly trap, which combines young Kevin's preoccupation with fire, basements, and, as with ornaments, under the window, making people walk on broken glass. In Saw 2, Jigsaw used an electrified staircase with blades that slashed at the legs of the SWAT team officers trying to apprehend him. An embryotic version of this trap appears in Home Alone, when Kevin coats the basement stairs with tar and nails, causing Marv to impale his foot. Now, what at first glance seems like an innocent, if mischievous child's justified defense of life and property is, in actuality, a cold-blooded and repeated attempt at double homicide. Now, in 2012, Dr. Ryan St. Clair of the Wheel Cornell Medical College was asked to assess the injuries incurred by Harry and Marv at the hands of Kevin McAllister in the nefarious Home Alone inventions. And I'm not going to go through all of this, but they would have been pretty messed up. <laughs> like Kevin definitely went all in on these two guys. And you know what? I'm just going to say it. Probably should have just called the police. Uh, it really just seems like he enjoyed putting these guys through the torture that he did. There is also a resemblance between young Kevin and Jigsaw. They have the same eye color, the same skin tone, same chin shape, and also the same kind of smirk as well. This is a really fun one, and this is one of those that I really appreciate the amount of research that went into it for people that started this claim. If you go back and watch Home Alone now as an adult, you really do think that, man, Kevin kind of did go a little bit too far. And he was obviously enjoying what he was doing to these two guys. Like, these poor robbers, like, all they wanted to do probably was, like, steal a stereo and, like, a television. And instead, they left with, like, injuries that scarred them probably for the rest of their lives. Let's move into the next one here, and it's going to be the second appearance that I mentioned of Leonardo DiCaprio, and this is going to be Inception. Now, Inception is already a film that requires a bunch of mental gymnastics just to get through, but I really like this one because Inception is a film that kind of encourages you to come to your own conclusion, and that's why it's really one of my favorite movies of all time. And this one's a little bit of a shorter one, and it has to do with Cobb's Totem. 
If you aren't familiar with or need a little bit of a refresher on what the totems are, the totems were to give the dreamer proof that they were dreaming. They are advised to have a totem. Arthur explained, quote, you need a small object, potentially heavy, which you can have on you at all times. That way, when you look at your totem, you know beyond a doubt that you're not in someone else's dream. Now, in the film, we are led to believe that Cobb's totem is supposed to be a spinning top, which belonged to his dead wife, Mal. Mal's spinning top used to spin infinitely if they were in a dream, but toppled over in reality. That way, she can make sure she was dreaming or if she was awake. It's implied heavily that Dom uses the same technique during multiple scenes. The thing is that Arthur tells Ariadne that she can't touch his totem because that would negate its purpose. Dom, however, frequently uses Mal's totem. So it's kind of immediately going back on what they've been advised not to do. This theory states, what if the spinning top isn't actually Cobb's totem at all, but it's just a memento? At the end of the movie, we see him spin the top on the table and then walk to his kids without a backwards glance. We, the audience, watch the top spin and spin and eventually give the tiniest of wobbles before the screen cuts to black. Have you noticed that Dom is wearing his wedding ring whenever he is in a dream? When he is awake, there is no ring. Rewatch Inception and you'll see that this is true. The theory is that the wedding ring is actually Cobb's totem, not the spinning top. It makes more sense because it's actually his own. He just has to look down at his hand to see if the ring is there to know if he's dreaming. That is even easier than a spinning top. So, the big secret of Inception is that the ring is Dom's true totem. That's why he doesn't have to look back at the spinning top on the table at the end of the film. And again, another reason why Inception is one of my favorite films, because yeah, this one could be totally true, or we could be just completely off. It could go either way. Also, I need to watch Inception soon. That is a damn good movie. Let's move into the second to last one, which I think is probably the least likely of all of them. But again, I really enjoy the theory nonetheless. And this one states that Breaking Bad is actually a Walking Dead prequel. Now, if you listen to the show long enough, you know that I have always, always praised Breaking Bad, and I consistently shit on The Walking Dead, even though I was a loyal viewer for about three and a half, almost four seasons, I just got tired of nothing happening. And I think a lot of you could probably relate to that as well if you gave up on The Walking Dead. I just couldn't watch episode after episode anymore where nothing of consequence ever happened. So I gave up. But for this theory, which I got from a combination of an Entertainment Weekly article and a CBR article, starts by saying through five seasons of Breaking Bad, Walter White is essentially responsible for many horrific events, including his brother-in-law's death and a tragic plane crash. But a fan theory that has been given new life ponders whether his drug empire could have also resulted in the zombie apocalypse on The Walking Dead. So we'll start with addressing the clearest indication that there is some correspondence between AMC's hit shows. In The Walking Dead, specifically the second episode of Season 2, when T-Dog was infected, Daryl Dixon came to the rescue with a veritable pharmacy of drugs from his bike bag. Some of its contents were comprised of his brother Merle's drug stash. He discovers some blue crystals at the bottom, tucked away from plain sight, which have a striking resemblance to Blue Sky, which was the street name coined for the notoriously potent and 99.1% chemically pure crystal methamphetamine manufactured by Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. Fans have based the theory that Walter White was inadvertently responsible for the undead epidemic on the presence of his blue meth within The Walking Dead. For the uninitiated, meth can be clear or opaque, but is always a shade of white. Blue meth is non-existent and was created specifically for Vince Gilligan's series. Therefore, the reasonable conclusion would be the universes are connected. To add more to this claim, The Walking Dead Season 4 Episode 12 sheds some light on how Merle Dixon obtained his narcotics. According to his brother Daryl, his dealer was, quote, a janky little white guy, a tweaker junkie, who once pulled a gun on him and said, quote, I'm going to kill you, bitch, 
To Breaking Bad fans, that would be a physical profile that perfectly matches Jesse, who was notorious for the use of the aforementioned curse word. Besides that glaringly obvious connection, other interconnecting theories have surfaced. For instance, the red 2009 Dodge Challenger with black racing stripes that Walter buys for his son Walt Jr. and subsequently blows up appears in a handful of the Walking Dead installments. Glenn Ree famously took it for a ride, and interestingly, Glenn was the name of a salesman that Walter returns the car to in Breaking Bad, though we never see his face. So it would be a little bit of a reach to assume that he is the same person. Now, there is a YouTube video put out by Netflix where they explain the speculation that Walter's blue meth caused the zombie pandemic. They also mentioned Gus Fring, who was just masterfully performed by Giancarlo Esposito. Now, he's the main antagonist of Breaking Bad and the employer of Walter and Jesse. He and Walter pretty much go at it throughout the entire series, which could mean that Walter's production of blue meth would be less controlled and possibly tainted the more that he and Gus fought. Netflix cleverly points out that Gus ended his run on Breaking Bad by literally, quote, walking dead after an explosion leaves him without half of his face, yet he still walks out of the hospital room before dropping dead. The theory further supports the idea that before Gus's demise, he faces his mortal enemy, Hector Salamanca, with the first batch of unstable blue meth. When the bomb explodes, he becomes the first zombie, also known as the Walking Dead's Patient Zero. The thing about this theory is it obviously requires the watcher to invent scenes that we do not see happen in either series. So again, I feel like this one is the least likely of all of the ones that I've mentioned, but it doesn't make it any less entertaining. So let's get into the last theory here, and it just so happens to include my favorite franchise of all time, which is Jurassic Park. And this is the one that I think holds the most weight, and this comes from a Reddit post from about nine years ago from a user named BrownRA04. This one's a little bit lengthier, and I'm just going to be reading straight from the Reddit post. Now, this theory is primarily about the Jurassic Park film, although it probably could apply to the book as well. We've all heard the big criticism of Jurassic Park, that dinosaur DNA simply couldn't have been extracted from the bellies of mosquitoes entombed in amber for millions of years. There is a How Stuff Works article that nicely sums up the problems with the science behind Jurassic Park. I won't get into what is mentioned here, but essentially, it's just not possible for the DNA to have survived that long. So if that's the case, how did they make the dinosaurs? Short answer is they did not. The idea of Jurassic Park containing, quote, dinosaurs is just a cover, a convenient lie that allows InGen to do huge amounts of genetic experimentation and also gives John Hammond the opportunity to make tremendous amounts of money. Let's take a look at the evidence. First off, you may know that since Jurassic Park's release in 1993, scientists have uncovered numerous pieces of evidence that show the dinosaurs depicted in the film are inaccurate in one way or another. The velociraptors are way too big, the T-Rex should have had feathers, Dilophosaurus probably didn't have neck fins, etc. But if the dinos were built from real DNA, then wouldn't they have been perfect recreations of the dinosaurs as they were millions of years ago? It's almost as if the dinosaurs were artificial creations based on limited scientific knowledge rather than actual clones. So if they're not real clones, then what are they? To me, the dinosaurs are simply genetic experiments. They're laboratory creations cobbled together out of reptilian, amphibian, and avian DNA in order to represent not real dinosaurs as they were, but the idea of what we think they should be. They're big and green, or brown and scary, have chomping teeth and terrifying roars, but they aren't dinosaurs. No dino ever existed that looked quite like a Jurassic Park Velociraptor or had the shaking frills of a Jurassic Park Dilophosaurus. This also explains the biggest problem that the park's creators had, keeping the dinosaurs female. Dinosaurs didn't have the ability to change gender originally. That was something bestowed on the JP dinos by humans because of the way they, quote, fill in the gaps of the dino DNA with frog DNA. 
What Hammond and company don't admit is that there is no dino DNA in the first place. It's all an act. Now, you may also remember the speech that John Hammond gives Ellie Sattler while they eat ice cream and watch the park fall apart around them. He begins talking about his own origins as an entertainer and brings up his first big creation, a flea circus. You know the first attraction I ever built when I came down from Scotland? The flea circus, Petticoat Lane. Really? Quite wonderful. I had uh, a wee trapeze and a uh, uh, um Carousel <laughs> and a seesaw. They all move, motorized, of course, but uh, people would say they could see the fleas. Oh, I can see the fleas, mummy, can't you see the fleas? Clown fleas and high wire fleas and fleas on parade. But with this place, I wanted to show them something that wasn't an illusion. Something that was real. Something that they could see and touch. This speech is particularly important because it shows Hammond's rationale behind building the park in the first place. Just like his flea circus, it's a deception. It uses something that isn't real to provide entertainment and allows the audience to fill in the gaps. With the flea circus, imagination and childlike innocence was all that was needed. But with Jurassic Park, the deception is much grander, and, as Hammond says, not entirely devoid of merit. However, it is still a lie the dinosaurs aren't dinosaurs. Hammond's tendency to lie and theatricize is also shown when the scientists visit the birthing lab in the beginning of the movie. The lab is nothing but an act as well, created to lend credibility to the lie that the dinosaurs are real. We know from the sequels that Jurassic Park's lab isn't even where a majority of the dinosaurs are born. They're created at Site B, then transported to Isla Nublar later on. Even the mosquito and amber cane that he carries around with him is a lie. If it had real DNA in it, he would have used it for research rather than decoration. The fact that he topped his cane with it shows that it's likely valueless, either a mosquito from the wrong era that he uses for appearances, or an out-and-out fake. Either way, it only furthers his deception. Hammond simply wants to create a believable narrative, fossilized mosquitoes and amber, ancient DNA, and genetic recombinations, for visitors to hang on to so that he can show them his fabricated dinosaur creatures, take their money, and laugh all the way to the bank. Now, this one, I think, carries the most weight out of all of the ones that we've talked about. And for those of you that do not know, book John Hammond is much different from film John Hammond. <laughs> the John Hammond we get in the film is this nice, caring, loving grandfather. The John Hammond we get in the book is an asshole. <laughs> he is a terrible person, and he gets his comeuppance in the Lost World book, and it's great. Another one of the reasons I would love to someday see a rated R reboot of Jurassic, but it's never going to happen because it just makes too much money and it's too appealing to kids, which is sad, but understandable. But anyway, again, this theory is nine years old, so now I think it's even truer than it was when it was originally posted. Because according to paleontological research, dinosaurs did not look like they do in Jurassic Park. Also, John Hammond is a billionaire, and we know how billionaires operate. So this is one of those theories that, again, is even more true than when it was originally posted in 2012. But those are just five theories that I wanted to mention here, and there were even a ton more that were just left on the cutting room floor. So if you guys enjoyed this, let me know, and I'll bring this back, and we'll talk about more theories from, uh, you know, from other films. I know way back in the day, we did a cartoon conspiracy theory episode. I might revisit that soon as well, because that one was a whole lot of fun. 
So thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Illuminati. I know it's been a while since I've done this series. If you really enjoyed that, make sure to check out the episode Landon and I recorded back in November in which we talked about crazy conspiracies. That episode was a whole lot of fun. Don't forget to check out our most recent episodes that I mentioned at the top of the show. Also, Wednesday's episode of Netflix and Phil will be discussing the stellar Tick, Tick, Boom, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, starring Andrew Garfield. Very much looking forward to bringing you guys that episode. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Wait For It Podcast, and on Twitter, Wait For It Pod. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do us a huge favor and leave us a five-star review if you feel like we've earned it. That is one of the best ways you can support the show. We can also be found on Pandora, Amazon Music, literally anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And as always, shout out to Buzzsprout for hosting the show. But thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Filuminati. I'm your host, Phil Smith, aka Phil the Filipino. Don't forget, we release new episodes every Monday and Wednesday. And all you have to do is wait for it. So, I heard you're looking for a go-to source for entertainment. Wait for it? Gaming? Wait for it? Anime? Plus Ultra! Mr. Eric Almighty and Phil the Filipino? Yeah, they've got you covered. And all you gotta do is... Wait for it. This is the Wait For It Podcast.